Happy Holidays from the DSR Network. We are deeply appreciative of our members and the year that we've had. To celebrate the holiday season, we are offering a 50% discount on either your first month or first year of membership. Members enjoy an ad-free listening experience, bonus content for virtually all of our shows, an invitation to the members-only Slack community, and more. Best of all, if you become a member in the month of December, you can take 50% off the membership price for the first month or for the first year. Visit thedsrnetwork.com slash buy and enter code DSRHOLIDAY at checkout. That's thedsrnetwork.com slash buy and code DSRHOLIDAY. Thank you very much for your support. Happy holidays from all of us at the DSR Network. As we all spend the holidays with our families, we're bringing you some of the best episodes from the network on some of the biggest events of the year. We hope you enjoy this look back at 2023, and please look forward to another year of Deep State Radio. Nine, 12, 10, 28, 2, 23. This is Deep State Radio, coming to you direct from our super-secret studio in the third sub-basement of the Ministry of SNARK in Washington, D.C., and from other undisclosed locations across America and around the world. Hello, and welcome to the podcast. I'm your host, David Rothkopf, coming to you from beautiful Washington, D.C., where it's spring-like. This uh, something else arranged I guess by the Biden administration following the rapturous reception for the State of the Union. I am joined by Rosa Brooks of Georgetown University, who's, I think, somewhere at Georgetown University. Is that where you are? Rosa? I am. I know. I don't usually show up, but today I had to. So, yes, I'm in a Georgetown University building. Uh, I don't know what I'm doing here. Super elegant. And also super elegant, David Sanger of the New York Times who could be anywhere. Where are you, David? I'm in my super secret squirreled away, arranged by Rosa, deep underground silo for book writing. Shh, David, don't tell anybody about it. Oh, Everybody's going to want to go. You know what writers are like. Yeah, exactly. Um, uh, writers would always want the excuse. And at some point soon, we'll be joined by Corey Shockey of AEI. But let's dive right in. Um, I want to get the stuff, you know, out of the way that we got to get out of the way. Personally, I do not wish to discuss balloons any longer. Wait I'm a not, minute. I've not discussed. I, I haven't had any chance to discuss balloons. No, I, I'm I dying to discuss them. Yeah, no, I get it. I get it. Yesterday, I, I, all I did was media about balloons and balloonatics. Rosa, why should any serious or even modest, moderately serious student of foreign policy or national security care about that balloon? Well, first of all, I think it's worth letting our listeners know in case they haven't been tracking this closely. When you hear balloon, you think of like this cute little thing that you get at the supermarket that says happy birthday on it or something. This balloon was about 200 feet in diameter, which is to say that it's, you know, taller than a 12-story or 15-story building. Its balloon doesn't quite give you the right picture here. You know, it was an enormous aerial vehicle 
and it appears kind of like to the have Stay Puff Man from Ghostbusters. <laughs> only yes, only bigger, much, much, much bigger. I mean, imagine that you took a 15-story building and wrapped the balloon around it. That's what we're talking about here. So if, in fact, it was being used for espionage purposes by the Chinese and it was flying over sensitive U.S. military facilities and nuclear facilities, it's kind of a big deal. Of course, the Chinese government insists that this was just sort of a stray civilian weather balloon that, you know, oops, who knows how, it kind of just drifted over the United States and we have no idea what happened, you know, just a, a weird rogue wind. And besides, it's not even a government thing that, you know, it, the implication is it's some kind of private industry weather balloon. And it was just really mean of the U.S. to shoot down the poor balloon. Obviously, I don't have any access to classified information. It seems extremely implausible given, given the pronouncements that have come out of the U.S. government and given everything else that that is, in fact, true. And, you know, I, on the one hand, I think it's, it's not a big surprise to anybody that the Chinese and probably half a dozen other countries at least are busily trying to, you know, eavesdrop on the U.S. and surveil U.S. facilities in any way they can. It's, it's not a big deal. But it's not that often that somebody's kind of, you know, caught in the act, as it were. And it obviously came at a particularly sensitive moment for U.S.-China relations. Tony Blinken was about to go to China. And that's when this balloon became, well, ballooned onto the scene. And that's, you know, it, it, it has the potential to really, oh God, I can't, everything I want to say, I suddenly realize is a terrible metaphor or a bad pun. So I'm just not going to say what I was going to say. Anyway, it does look that as if both the U.S. and the Chinese government are attempting to keep this from becoming catastrophic break in relations. But at a moment when the risks of escalation are already quite high, you know, it's, it's not something, it's not a good thing. Um, so no, everybody, everybody should be concerned about it. And I think that the challenge is going to be kind of calibrating the right level of concern enough to be serious, but not so much that we accidentally get into a much bigger fight than we need to. Yeah, then they were in the Noin and Noinsic Luftballon territory. Um, uh, are, are you going to sing? I don't think you get to say that unless you're going to sing. Did, uh, pretty sure no one wants me to sing. Um, yeah, I'm pretty uh, sure of that too. <laughs> although, although when I was, although I wrote a Daily Beast column that ended with that song, and so then I was on MSNBC the other night, and Joy Ann Reed began by singing it. Actually, so so it's go hard back, not to. It is. It back, is. Yeah, no, it's a classic. It's sort of what genre. I said about metaphors and puns. It's really hard not to uh, engage in bad punning and bad singing. Yeah. So, David, you know, I know how Washington works and you're like a big shot journalist. And so and you write about national security. So I'm guessing because I have some experience with this that, you know, they called you up and they said, you know, David, this is much bigger than it looks. Let's have a background discussion. <laughs> they and said, they, David, this is not one little tiny balloon. This is this a is, big balloon. It's a big balloon. And what's more, there have been balloons over five continents. There were balloons over the Trump administration, which, by the way, is probably a good title for a musical of some sort. And we looked at the balloon closely, and it was definitely a surveillance balloon, and it had solar panels on it, and it had sensors on it, and we jammed the sensors, and da dot da dot da dot da dot Did they call you? Did they tell you that kind of thing? And they didn't. Um, they didn't. They didn't call you. Weird. No. Weird. No. Well, they probably figured that, you'd figure this out for yourself. 
Um, you, but but you, Tony have to, Blin- you have to you have to discount this, David, by the fact that when the balloon thing when the balloon went up, and sometime after I said on CNN that I thought this would all blow over. Sorry about that. Oh boy! Uh, hey, rather than blow up. Oh boy! I, I just by the way, oh, I see Corey Shockey has joined us here in the background, and I just want you to know, Corey, in advance, all the stupid balloon jokes have been used up. So there are none left. <laughs> but really, there's no there's no reason not to use them so, again. There have been endless permutations of bad balloon jokes. And I would be super sorry if I would have missed them all. Yeah, well, yeah, we'll let David finish. And then if he has not hit one of your favorite dumb balloon jokes, you can go next. OK, all right. Well, so, I don't David- plan to leave. I don't pl- I don't plan to leave any untouched, but I have a funny feeling that Corey will think of a few. So, uh, no, they didn't call, which I found interesting. It could be the fact that during the weekend I was caught in minus 25 degree um, weather in Vermont and I couldn't hear anything. Right? You were you were the guy the on top of Mount Washington that I saw on that camera that, you know, that they David, had I hate to break it to you, but that's in New Hampshire. and. When we're in Vermont, New Hampshire is the place we float balloons over, okay? Wow. Because it's like the enemy territory, yeah, right? (laughs) So my initial reaction to this, David, was a bit dismissive because, let's face it, you can collect more data from cyber intrusions, we've talked about endlessly on this show, and not see the balloon, right? I mean, think about the... 20 million plus security uh, clearance files that the Chinese got out of the Office of Personnel Management, or think about how they stole the F-35 design, or think about the thefts that they have done by getting into Microsoft's networks just at the end of the Trump administration. So what made this different? The first thing that made it different, as Rosa suggested before, was visibility, right? The timing comes at a moment where the only thing the Democrats and Republicans can agree on is it's really a great thing to sound tougher and tougher and tougher on China. And then people are out walking around Montana or Kansas City, and they're looking up and they see this giant balloon and the Pentagon has just told them that actually it's a surveillance thing and that the sensor package for it is the size of a small regional airliner. That's the part that was dropping down from the balloon. And then we learn, of course, that there had been previous sightings. The worst part of this is that the U.S. government missed most of those during the Trump administration. I mean, excuse me, how do you miss a balloon of this size floating around even on the edges? It was a very discreet balloon, a very discreet. Apparently about the size of this one. So they only discovered this by going back and sort of replaying the tape and saying, oh, that thing we thought was maybe a UFO, it was actually yep. a balloon. Right. That thing that we thought was the moon, that wasn't the moon at all. <laughs> it was weird how there were two moons that one night. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Good yeah. night, balloon. Uh, anyway. Oh, um, Jesus. Oh, sorry about that. Uh, the, um, the second thing that we learned is that one of these cracked uh, some time ago, during the Biden administration, we believe, and was picked apart by the U.S. so or is in the process of that, which may, 
may explain why it is that there was such certainty when this started coming over the continental U.S. that it was not a meteorological balloon. So the interesting question to my mind at this point is, why would the Chinese want to do something this obvious? My guess is that Xi Jinping isn't really happy about this, that the memo that was supposed to go out after the meetings uh, in Bali were let's bring down the temperature with the United States. So the fact that uh, Secretary of State Blinken canceled his meeting could not have been something that they welcomed. But at the same time, if there are as many of these balloons as we think, there's got to be both a serious intelligence collection effort to it. And, you know, if you think in cyber terms, it could be used as well for some kind of electronic warfare offensive operation as well. We have no evidence of that yet, but I can tell you right now that's what they're looking for in the wreckage. Yes. Well, there's the, um, we can you know follow up on that in a minute, but I want Corey to have the chance to answer this question, which was, why should anybody care about this balloon? And I'll just add one fact. David talked a little bit about all the cyber stuff that's going on. The Chinese have between 60 and 70 satellites also that are doing all sorts of nefarious things in in space. They've got all sorts of people on the ground doing this kind of snooping. We weren't, you know, at greater risk of being snooped upon in any material way. Why did this turn into such a hubbub? I think it turned into such a hubbub because of the sheer effrontery of such an extended violation of American airspace by the Chinese. And I think as Secretary Blinken rightly pointed out, imagine what the Chinese reaction would be if we had done this. And and so I'm not sure I give Xi Jinping as much credit as David does. Namely, I don't think we should assume that he didn't want this to happen. One possible reason he might have wanted it to happen, even if he didn't want to spoil the diplomatic get-together would be to make a case that he can barely keep the Chinese military under control. So we're just going to, Americans are just going to have to live with this kind of stuff and, you know, back off from Taiwan because after all, this could really get out of hand. And we, there is precedent for that. Remember when Secretary Gates went to China and they they had the first test of the fighter that, as David pointed out, they stole the designs from the United States. I was with the secretary that day. He wasn't really happy, Corey. It's entirely possible. They wanted Blinken to show up amidst all of this to demonstrate that we have to deal with them no matter what they do. I do think, though, that the consequence is going to be uh, a lot more Americans thinking China's a bad guy and somebody we need to be worried about. Yeah, yeah no, they may not have done themselves any favors. No, no, they they certainly they they certainly didn't. Of course, you know, hysteria on our side probably didn't help anything. One of the things that has been reported, although not much, was that the U.S. when this happened had a hard time connecting with the Chinese to talk about. It. There was like they weren't having an easy time getting through, get their calls through. And one person at a senior government position suggested to me that one good possible outcome of this, Rosa, might be that we would 
make a better effort to establish crisis communications links that don't really exist. That seems pretty reasonable to me. What do you think? That absolutely does. And I'm I'm actually dismayed to hear you say that what you've heard is that there wasn't an instant way to make communication and to get communication links at a high level because there, there, of course there should be, there absolutely should be. It's really critical in this environment in particular where, you know, there's so many possible areas where deliberately or, or more likely inadvertently, you know, something could happen that could rapidly escalate things. You, you, you know, we, we absolutely need to have that link. I just want you to know that my, the links exist. The Chinese won't pick them up. That's what happened. So, that's what happened. You know, that's what happened. Oh dear. Yeah, that's even it's worse. We don't have. It's <laughs> that the Chinese are pointedly ensuring they don't work. The in Chinese are saying things like, "Oh, I'm so sorry. I was in the shower. I didn't realize the phone was ringing." That's that's <laughs> that's exactly that's right. right. The incoming ambassador they were trying to reach, Xie Xie Xie, was washing his hair. That must have been it. I wrote a little bit about this on, on Sunday. And what did this remind you of? What event that only David Rothkoff here and I are old enough to remember? Well, obviously, the- you're referring to the flight of the Montgolfier brothers' first balloon in 1780. <laughs> <laughs> which, by the way, made for a really great, which made for a really great deep state episode. Yeah, I know. And, it, was one of, uh, it was one of when our- When you guys put. Pl- when you guys do the archives, I think you really ought to play that one. <laughs> yeah, no, that was the, remember when they sent the sheep and the goat and whatever? Uh, you yeah, know, exactly. Right. So it's the EP3 incident, which was the oh, first yeah. crisis of the Bush administration in 2001. And for those like Rosa and Corey, who were only small children at the time, the, Wait a second. Wasn't this, Corey in that administration at the time? Yeah, she was, but she was a small <laughs> child. Right. I had gone back to teaching after the Taft administration, but then came back. During that incident, a U.S. intelligence collection aircraft, which was, my recollection is 70 miles or so off of Hainan Island, got into a collision with a Chinese jet that went up to basically intercept it and and harass it. And I believe the Chinese pilot was killed. The U.S. plane landed in Hainan. The people, the pilot and the crew were taken captive for a while. There was no communication. And Colin Powell, who was at the time Secretary of State, was kind of pulling his hair out. And at the end of this, after they returned our crew and sent back our plane and a small shoebox, they worked very hard to come up with a crisis communications system, hotlines and all kinds of ways to go talk and so forth. And here we are, 22 years later, almost exactly, and none of that system worked. What's yeah. that tell you? No, it tells you a lot. And by the way, when the EP3 went down, the first move of the Bush administration was to have Rumsfeld handle it, and that didn't go well. And so then they had, then they had Powell handle it, in which, and then the Chinese, and just it's worth reliving that um, because you know of the hubbub here. But uh, the Chinese took the plane apart, examined it, and sent it back in boxes. They they put it in crates and they sent it back in crates. Right? I mean, We're going to send the balloon back in a little coffin. 
<laughs> the balloon is D-E-D dead. Yeah. <laughs> well, you know, it's, it is disturbing that the lines of communications aren't there. But let me ask you another question, Rosa. Within the administration, when all this was going on, one of the first questions that came up was, hey, should the Secretary of State go to China? And the administration pretty quickly came to the conclusion that he shouldn't. But by the way, my sources tell me that there were people in the State Department that were agitating for him to go. And there was a bit of a debate about this. The argument was better to go, have communications, make the strong protest, and do it there. And I'm just wondering what your thought is on canceling that trip. I think he was probably right to cancel the trip. I mean, on the one hand, obviously, neither the U.S. nor China can afford to let this turn into, to let this balloon into something even larger. But at the same time, you know, I, have, I do we think- We should have, it, at the very <laughs> beginning, turned this into a drinking game. <laughs> All our listeners would be- They've probably been doing that already. They'd be um, in the fetal position on the floor right now. I should hope they've been doing that regularly while listening to this pod. But, but to the extent that, you know, that the Chinese may have thought this will- force the, you know, Tony Blinken will not be able to feel, will not feel he can afford to cancel this trip. And that will look good for us because it'll show that, you know, we're really calling the shots and that we can do something really obnoxious and piss them off and they still have to come running. And I think it was important for us to make it, you know, take away that narrative and to sort of say, no, you know, at the same time, you know, I, I think both sides clearly recognize that, that we don't want this to turn into something something even bigger. I'm not going to make any more puns. So no, I, th- I think Tony did the right thing. Um, and the State Department, those who were counseling just going, I do think that would have been a mistake. You know, I mean, it, it is a big deal. I mean, I'm and I'm assuming here, and maybe I'm being unfair to China, right? Maybe it really was a giant weather balloon, and or maybe it actually did say happy birthday on the side. And it was, you know, it was up there for somebody's party. And that's all it was. And it's all a terrible, tragic mistake. But, you know, probably not. OK. And, and given that probably not, it, it's a pretty big deal. And we, we have to acknowledge that it's a pretty big deal. What without turning it into a bigger deal than it than it already is. The one area where, I, you know, if I if I can pivot to a slightly different aspect of all this, where I think we've now gotten ourselves into a little bit of a pickle, it's not clear what the legal basis was for shooting that thing down. You know, and we we ourselves have said Pentagon spokespeople have said repeatedly that they did not view this as any immediate threat. And when you don't think anything is an immediate threat, you you sort of take away your ability to say, well, we shot it down in self-defense. The Chinese, of course, are, are asserting, as I said, you know, that it's just a weather balloon. It drifted off course. What can you do? And the, the principle of force majeure is what they're citing. They're saying, look, yes, it's true that normally even a civilian aircraft, you can't just have it cross into somebody else's airspace without asking permission or doing any, you know, mentioning it to anybody, but, you know, act of God, you know, wind came along, we had no idea who knew, you know, and when there's an emergency, uh, you know, if, if you're, you're facing an emergency crisis, generally legal principles say that you can go into another nation's airspace, including landing in a, in a dire emergency situation, which, which, you know, you didn't, you didn't cause bad weather, et cetera, mechanical breakdown. So that's what the Chinese are, are asserting. And it's not totally clear what legal basis we had for for shooting it down. And, you know, in some ways, that's we live in a world where it's not particularly clear 
at this moment that any of the world's great powers are paying a whole heck of a lot of attention to international law. So, you know, on some level, so what? Par for the course. But, you know, as a, as a, as a lawyer, it's hard for me not to feel like this is, you know, it just becomes one more little, I can't find the right metaphor for this. I was going to say brick in the wall, but it's the opposite, right? It's a brick taken out of the wall of the rather shaky edifice that props up the international legal system. Rosa, the balloon was, what, a week over American territory? And at no point did the Chinese com- explain force majeure, claim force <laughs> Until majeure. we said, hey, we don't like your balloon. Is the only ex post facto justification? I mean, make it a little sketchy. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I, it's completely sketchy, right? It's not impossible, but it's unlikely. But that being said, you know, when another country is saying, oh, no, goodness me, we're so sorry, that balloon, first of all, we didn't send it on purpose. It wasn't us. It was, a, you know, it was some kind of private actor. Still, I don't know if you and any of you know more about this. I don't know if the Chinese have specified who they're, who they're claiming the balloon actually belonged to and who sent it in the first place. But the fact that they're saying that time, you know, they, possibly there are other things we could have done, right? Possibly we could have somehow netted the balloon or something and, you know, taken it down without destroying it utterly and saying, well, we're just going to keep it here while we all figure out, you know, what the heck was going on with the balloon. The fact that we shot it down when, when they were saying, even if quite implausibly, it was an accident and it was a civilian balloon, you know, it, it puts us in the position of having to, you know, now, now we're wrong footed a little bit here. And maybe, again, maybe we don't care. Right. Maybe we think that in the grand scheme of things, it's better to be wrong footed when it comes to international legal norms, which the Chinese are not famous for respecting themselves, than to do nothing and create the impression that we are. And I think I think it's a matter of domestic politics. You know, the, the fear, obviously, that the Biden administration had is we don't want to appear impotent. We, impotent. we don't want to appear like, oh, the Chinese just get to do whatever we want. They want and we can't do anything about it. We just have to let them do it. And all they have to do is say, oops, sorry you know, weather balloon blew off course, whoopsie doopsie, and then it happens 10 more times, right? So, so I, I understand all the reasons that, that it felt like an imperative to do what we did, but, but I do think it's worth noting that it's not, the legal basis for doing it, it's not particularly clear what it is, it's not particularly clear what it could be. So this is the point, just as David is about to speak, when we That's usually right. take a break. And the reason we usually take the break it's because it's everybody wants speaking. to hear. No, people <laughs> want to hear David speak, and we want to encourage them to become members. So if we say only members will get to hear David speak, membership will skyrocket because people right now are saying, I want to go to the DSRnetwork.com, click membership, and become a member because I want to hear what David has to say. And, I don't And because them. they feel like they haven't heard enough balloon puns, and no, they want more. And there will be more in the there remaining segment of this show and we will throw those in for absolutely no additional cost so if you're not a member bye talk to you soon if you are a member stand by you'll get to hear from david and then Corey. hi welcome back nice to see you david i would defer to rosa on the legal basis here Let's establish a few well, things. No, First but of all, while I, she's doing this, bring up the EP3 because the EP3 uh, did have an accident, did have a right to land. The Chinese had no right to take it apart. They and, took it and apart. It was in, and it was in international territory when they took it down. Exactly. 
So it's, which, that's, which this that's, was not. So, so the Chinese had a couple of choices here. They could have the first couple of days, even with the force majeure argument, called up on that hotline they weren't using and say, oh, we made an awful mistake here. Our weather balloon, it's going to play. Obviously, you don't want this over your territory. We never intended it for go over your territory. Let's work out a joint operation to bring this thing down quietly together. That phone call never happened. Had it happened, then I think people would be more sympathetic with the question of why did you shoot it down? Second, had we put this up over China, had we even put it up over the islands that they claim and we deny they have sovereignty over in the South China Sea, I suspect it would have come down the same way. But there is a concern here, and my concern is that shooting something down is aggressive and thus escalatory, and the next time we have some incident that we can't exactly predict right now, maybe in disputed airspace between Taiwan and China, the Chinese are going to cite this as an example to act more aggressively than they really need to at the time. That, I think, is the bigger risk. I don't think you're going to see them take uh, you know, an international legal action to get back the remnants of their pop balloon. Well, let me flip the story here, Corey, because there was a big chorus, particularly from the right, saying, oh, here's Biden putting us at risk. We should shoot this down right away. Why didn't he shoot it down right away? And, uh, you know, these things do happen periodically. Do you think there's a risk that future such events are going to go to unhappy conclusions because the atmosphere, the tenor, has changed and or been changed by this incident? Yes, I do. I think American public attitudes have been trending very negative towards China for the last several years, and for good reason, because of the nature of Chinese behavior. And so, yeah, things are getting more brittle and more tense between the U.S. and China. And I think that's likely going to continue. I mean, Xi Jinping was supposedly wanting to cool down all of these tensions. And Secretary Blinken was going to Beijing. And then this happened. I think this is the nature of the challenge China is posing and the behavior it's exhibiting. So, so yeah, it's tense. It's going to get tenser and until either China liberalizes or the United States concedes and stops trying to protect the existing international order. Let me change the subject. Last night, the president of the United States delivered a State of the Union address. You can say anything you want about it. Uh, one thing that was notable about the State of the Union address was that it was not until an hour and five minutes into the address that he mentioned anything having to do with international issues or national security. And he stayed on that subject for about four minutes. In other words, it was definitely not a speech that focused on that. He made points about Ukraine. He made points about China. He mentioned the balloon. He did not get to some of the good balloon jokes. He did not. He never said the word balloon, interestingly. No, he did. He did not. It was a. Even though Marjorie Taylor Greene brought a white balloon with her just to just to be the mean meanie we know she is. 
So she would have a friend. Well, actually, I think the, the, the winning tweet of the day was George Conway, who tweeted over a picture of Marjorie Taylor with her, with her white balloon. He tweeted, oh, nice, a model of her brain. This is such an elevated political discussion. <laughs> um, so, Rosa, anything to yes. say about the State of the Union? Uh, no. It, I mean, obviously, look, Biden calculated and his, his advisors calculated probably correctly that most Americans really don't care as much about what they perceive as international and foreign policy issues as they care about the domestic issues. And so that's where he prioritized in terms of the, the order and, and sort of ratio of, of, of his comments. I do think that Biden, I thought, I thought he did a good job. You know, he was combative and I thought that was actually good because I think, I think that the Republican, the, the, the sort of loony win of the Republican party, which as we know, looms, looms ever larger, Marjorie Taylor Greene being a prime example is always trying to depict him as, you know, somehow senile. And I think the fact that, you know, Biden, whatever you may say about him, he can hold his own in a, in a verbal brawl, right? I mean, that guy is not going to back down. He's not going to get embarrassed and he's not going to, you know, he's not going to, he's, he's going to, he's going to push right back. And, and he did that. And I actually think he kind of needed to do that. I think, will it make any difference? Will it persuade the people who already dislike him? No. But will it potentially help with some of the, you know, shrinking, the shrinking percentage of Americans who are independents and haven't decided what they're going to do? Yeah, it might. David? So a few things about it. Uh, first of all, I was struck by the fact that it was uh, well into the speech before he made the briefest mention of foreign policy issues. Because when you think about what was notable about this past year, confronting both Russia and China, he could have made a lot more about that, particularly about Ukraine. He spent a lot more time on Ukraine last year when the State of the Union was given just six or seven days after the invasion began than he did this time. He never mentioned Zelensky's name. He did introduce the Ukrainian ambassador to the United States who was up in the box with Jill Biden. Second, if you view this speech as the opening of his presidential campaign or the prelude to it, the fact that he was that active, that he jousted with some of the Republicans who were uh, shouting at him was pretty notable. He sort of walked them into a trap when uh, he mentioned in the speech that they had proposals that would drastically cut Social Security and Medicare. They wildly booed him, and he turned around and said, well, great, we've got con converts here. There's been conversion, you know, and he sort of like lured them into a moment that will replay on TV if indeed there is an effort to cut into Social Security and, and Medicare. I think the third thing uh, that was notable about this was that the degree of energy he showed was obviously all about putting down the number one complaint which is that you are running the parties, getting ready to run somebody who is 80 now, would be 82 in inaugural times, and uh, would leave office uh, at 86. We haven't done that before. That's the one issue he's got to address, and the only way he can address it is with high energy. High energy. That's Yes, that's why I'm having high energy, and I'm going to make sure we end with high energy here because I'm going to Corey. And Corey, you can say anything you want about the State of the Union, but I, one particular question is, when the rest of the world sees the big speech of the year for the U.S. president, and it's like five minutes about the rest of the world, 
Do, do you think that has any effect or do you think, you know, they think, well, that's just the Americans. I think it reminds America's friends and adversaries how little we do actually care about the rest of the world. And it's part of one potential consequence of that is adversaries thinking the United States won't do things like rally 50 countries to provide assistance to Ukraine when it is attacked by Russia. So I would have liked to see more foreign policy. I would have liked to see the president not sound so triumphal while Ukrainians are still dying. More humility and more commitment and less look at all we've done, I think would have been more seemly. And as long as we're talking about unseemliness, the disgracefulness of heckling, not just from one or two of the Republican nihilists, but by quite a lot of Republicans, may represent a return to the norm of American politics, that is the rambunctiousness and rudeness that characterize American politics historically. But it's still a sad, terrible development that I think we should notice. The other thing is, so I hate the State of the Union speech. I hate it no matter who's giving it. I think we should return to the slip the printed version under the door of the Capitol and go home because it has a late Roman Empire kind of feel that I think becomes us ill. Moreover, it has become such performance art that it's not the president so much laying out an agenda to to bring Congress along on as, you know, shots across each other's bow. And I don't actually think it advances a president's legislative agenda to do it. Last thing I'll say is the president has yet to actually give a speech about why we should care about Ukraine. And I don't think he did a very good job of it last night. Senator Roger Wicker, the ranking minority on armed services, gave a terrific, here's why this is in America's interests a week or two ago. And I'd really like to see the president start doing that in order to tamp down concerns on both the right and the left about the magnitude of assistance, where it fits in our priorities, and other things that people actually are right to be asking about and there are good answers to. Interesting observations. And I would I would add that I was having a conversation, you know, with a a so-called senior administration official. That's why I'm wearing a necktie just at lunch moments ago. And one of the things that we discussed was that, you know, perhaps the U.S. should be doing more on, you know, our campaign to defend democracy, uh, more about the various countries that are engaged in the battle against authoritarianism, raise the awareness of why this is important to the American people communicate about a bunch of the things that Corey just mentioned. Uh, and so perhaps perhaps things will evolve in that direction. Once again, you're just the three people I'd most want to talk to on a week like this. Your wits are so sharp that you punctured the balloon story and let all the air out of it. And it is finally deflated. I hope none of our listeners are 
Okay, deep state radio nerds love bad puns. Otherwise, they wouldn't be with us all this time. They're going to love it even more when you sing, David. Yeah, that's that's after that's going to be a new <laughs> level. That's going to be a new level of membership. Thank you very much, Rosa. Thank you very much, Corey. Thank you very much, David. Thank you very much, everybody, for listening. We'll be back again soon with more insights into mental health, aeronautics, the Montgolfier <laughs> brothers, and uh, all the other things who come to us for each week. So come back soon. Bye.